Furthermore, the equation E is equal mc square. And here's the discovery. Hello and welcome to another Cheeky Scientist radio podcast. I am Isaiah Hankel with Cheeky Scientist. We have a great show for you today. This is the radio show for PhDs who want to get hired into their first or next job in industry and who want to thrive in business. Thank you for joining us. Here we go. Great to see everybody on. Thanks for showing up early. Really appreciate it. Hello, Mario. Hello, Amerzog. Hello, Vasuda. Hello, Toby. Hello, Patrick. Great to see you on. Please remember to change your drop-down menu to all panelists and attendees so that we can see what you say. Hello, Toby. Hello, Tarak. So I'm going to get the live uh, stream set up here. And then we'll be good to go. So Lisa, if you could just have the, the Cheeky Scientist fan page pulled up. So as soon as we go live, uh, you could ping me in the chat box. That would be great. Otherwise, it shows me staring off into space for the first few seconds. But I think we should be good here. Let's go live here. And we should be loading up here very shortly. Welcome to another Cheeky Scientist radio show. It's great to have you. We have a great show lined up today. Today we are talking about what PhDs need to know about leadership um, and how to become a career multiplier. How to become a career multiplier. So great to see all of you on. If you can see and hear me okay, please say hello in the chat box. It looks like we are live. So welcome to another radio show. We have a great show lined up for you today. We're talking about how PhDs can become leaders in their career and how they can become career multipliers. We have a very special uh, guest on today. We will be interviewing the New York Times bestseller, Liz Weissman. Uh, she's wrote the book, Multipliers, which you can find on Amazon and, uh, and other retailers too, of course, as well as her newest book, Rookie Smarts. Very excited to have her on and great to see all of you joining us here. We'll be interviewing Tim Bushnell, PhD, who will be talking to us about the importance of ongoing technical training in terms of getting promoted. And we'll also be bringing on Orly Leviton, who will be coming on to talk about project management careers for PhDs. We have an incredible show lined up. It's great to see all, all of you on. We have our Cheeky Scientist Associates here with us live in Zoom interacting. Indra, great to see you on. Jason, Gulshan, Greg, Connie, Camille, Barbara, Andrea, great to see you on too. Uh, Zia, great to see you on. Will, and we also have our, our B-roll camera view over here where associates can watch us as well. Hello, Javiera. Hello, Sal. Great to, great to see you on. If you're watching us on our public Facebook page, or if you're watching on YouTube, uh, we are streaming live for the public portion, but we also have a separate associates only portion of the radio show, which happens during the final segment where we do in-depth reviews of LinkedIn profiles, resumes, talk about interview questions, specific things about your job search. But today we're talking about how PhDs can become leaders and career multipliers, have an incredible show lined up. As always, we have a show up bonus for all of you that I'm going to share on my screen here. And the show up bonus is live during this show only. I'm going to share my screen and show you the show up bonus. This is your one chance to get the show up bonus. 
Uh, just go to cheekyscientist.com slash show dash up dash bonus dash transferable dash skills. So again, it's cheekyscientist.com show up bonus transferable skills with a dash in between every one of the words after the slash. And here, here you're going to get the show up bonus with the top three transferable skills that we're see, we see trending right now for PhDs. If you scroll to the bottom, put in your name and email address, you will get this free bonus. It's a white paper and it's something that, that's very topical, something we're seeing trending right now. That's what these show up bonuses cover. So again, just go to cheekyscientist.com slash show up bonus transferable skills. I want to highlight very quickly two articles that are trending. We have hundreds and hundreds of articles on the Cheeky Scientist Association blog. If you go to cheekyscientist.com blog, we also have the top trending articles here on the left. I want to focus, uh, point your attention to two. One, the top one right now is five science communication careers for PhDs who enjoy talking and writing about science. So we're seeing these science communication careers, such as medical writing, um, accelerating. Lots of PhDs are getting into these. They're very, very, very popular careers. They're growing. Communication continue great product or treatment, et cetera. You need to be able to communicate it effectively. This is another great article. I finally started getting contacted by employers on LinkedIn when I updated these five parts of my LinkedIn profile. All right, so check out the top two trending articles. And then of course, every week we do a best of this week. We look for all of the best career articles for PhDs, um, whether it's ongoing training in terms of career development, your technical training, job, jobs getting hired. It's all here for you out every week, the best industry articles of that week. So make sure you check that out as well. So we're going to jump into our first segment here. Our first segment, as always, is the show me the data segment. Before we get there, I have one more thing to mention. The National Postdoc Association Conference is coming up in Orlando, Florida. And I'm curious, anybody here, anybody here going to the National Postdoc Association Conference? Let me know in the chat box. Lisa's going. All right, great. If you're going, you're watching us live, we will be there. We would love to meet you uh, in the next week or so. We're going to have a special page for those of you coming to the National Postdoc Association where you can sign up. We will do a full resume review for you at the event, um, and we'll give you some very special bonuses at our booth. So stay tuned for that. Okay, so now we're going to jump into the show me the data section, and I'm going to bring on Jeanette McConnell to help us with this. So let's see if we can get Jeanette on here. There. There's Jeanette. Hi, Jeanette. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Great to see you. Thanks for joining us. Very excited about today's Show Me the Data. Let me share the screen so we can see it and review the data. Yeah. All right. So if you can see my screen and you can see Jeanette, please type in yes in the chat box for those of you that are joining us here live, for those of you who are, are associates with us. Excellent. Thank you very much. So if we scroll down here, the first figure that we're looking at, the title is Postdoc X-ray in Europe, 2017, work conditions, productivity, institutional support, and career outlooks. And so Jeanette and I were talking before the radio show started, and we really wanted to dig into data outside of the U.S. because we had a lot of requests of what's going on in Europe. And, you know, we talk a lot about the worldwide average, and there's some people bringing down these averages, bringing them up, the average in terms of industry salary, but also in terms of postdoc salary. And in terms of postdoc salary, things are uh, even worse, I would say, in Europe, depending on which part you're looking at. So we have four different figures here, A through D. The first figure just shows the overall distribution and we're seeing a horizontal 
uh, bar here and the x-axis goes from, from one up to nine. It's showing gross income in euros. Jeanette, what does this tell us? Yeah, so the first thing I'll say is that although the title of this article is 2017, that it was published in January. Hmm. Um, so that this is like the, the latest data that I could find. Yes. Um, I think that's worth noting. Things just move slowly in academia, we know this. Um, <laughs> yes. But this first uh, figure, the overall distribution of the gross income of postdocs, that includes all postdocs all across Europe. Um, and you can see from the graph that the average falls right around 30,000 euros. Mm. Um, so that's quite a low salary. And I think that it's, it's important for us to know these numbers, right? So that we can move forward and think, yeah. you know what? Like I'm not alone in making this amount of money, but that that's, doesn't mean that it's right. Mm. So. And then what do you see in terms of uh, B and C respectively? B showing the effect of European regions. So basically the gross salary by region, whether it's Western Europe, Southern Europe, or Eastern Europe, and then also the effect uh, based on gender, uh, which it has here, male, male and female. Yeah, yeah, so uh, based on gender, we see a slight decrease in the amount of money that women make as postdocs, which is not surprising because the gender wage gap exists everywhere. Um, uh, so it is significant uh, with a p-value of 0 0.02 that women make slightly less than men. Um, still right around that $30,000 mark or 30,000 euros, excuse 30, me. Euros, yes. um, and then um, the other interesting thing is that you see, depending on the location in Europe, uh, we get different salaries, uh, but that sort of mirrors the level of earnings, I think, of those entire regions as well. So you have to take that kind of stuff into account. Yes. Um, but it's still very disappointing to see someone with such a high level of education and such skills making this amount of money when we know that in industry that can be making so much more money and being paid truly what they're worth. Mm. Um, and then the last image is just showing that this amount of money is it's similar. Postdocs are making a similar amount of money across industries, right? So, or research area, right? So whether it's humanities or life science, mm. um, we're still seeing this average be between 20 and 40,000 euros. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. I mean, uh, you know, like we talked about earlier, Eastern, Eastern Europe, some people are making, you know, 10,000 euros or less. And a lot of the studies that many of you see take out these $10,000 or euro less uh, people as outliers, even though there is a significant population. So a lot of times the postdoc salaries are inflated. You know, if you see a number like 46, 47,000 average worldwide for postdocs, it's likely inflated. If you take all, right, don't, don't count these, uh, subjective outliers, then it, it, it pushes it much further down, uh, closer to 30,000 or less, which is uh, obviously at least a, a le way less than a half, but about a third of what you're worth as a PhD in industry worldwide, which the average is about 91,000 worldwide. Uh, so it's important to, to look at this. It's important in D, like Jeanette said, where, it's, where they're, they're focused on effective research area. They have social sciences and humanities life sciences, environmental and geosciences, mathematics, physics, et cetera. There is some uh, variation. It's odd to me that they put social sciences and humanities together. I don't know why they do that. I mean, because there's such a discrepancy. Usually humanities is much lower and then social sciences, which includes like psychology, et cetera, is quite a bit higher if you separate those two. So that's, that's one thing to note. And I would also say, you know, all of the data that we've seen, it's kind of subjective how they group it together. You know, it might seem like it makes sense, but really mathematics, physics, chemistry, there's a, quite a variance there too. So just keep that in mind. But either way, 
nothing very impressive here. Uh, so moving on to the, the next figure. Here we're looking at clarity. I love this figure. So it's the clarity of your career plan. So maybe you can walk us through this and I'll just describe what it looks like for everybody. It's a multicolored uh, horizontal bar graph. Uh, the x-axis goes from zero up to 100 and that's percentage. And we're, we, we see, you know, about I don't 15.3 in the kind of the, in the ones, and then we see twos, threes, fours, and fives. And this is based on a survey, right? Where they kind of rank their clarity of their career plan, Jeanette? Correct. So they asked these postdocs to rank the clarity of what they felt their career plan and career future was based on a scale of one to 10, or sorry, one to five, only to yes. five, one to five, with one being completely uncertain, like they have no idea what they're going to do, and five being very certain that they, of their career plan. Yes. Um, and so what they found is that there was only 11.3% of these postdocs who said they were very certain about their career plan, which I think isn't surprising to us, but it's disappointing. Yes. Um, and then the other thing that I'd like just to talk about is that there was 15.3% of people who were completely unsure of what, where to go next, right? So they haven't been given the tools and the knowledge to know how to move to the next step of their career, what even is next. And if we look at all of the data together, you can see that it's a, like more than 60% of these people are unsure of the, the clarity of their career plan, right? So all the yes. way through one, two, and three, which to me is all uncertain people. Yes. Um, if I was ranking it myself between one and five, right? Yes. Um, we can see that it's more than 65%. So the majority of these postdocs are unsure about their career future. Yeah, which is... Not surprising for those yeah. of you. How many of you are in a postdoc right now? Type in me in the chat box if you would. I'm guessing it's it's quite a quite a few. Um, and even if you're a, a a PhD student, we've all experienced this. We've been given a target at times. The few times we've been given a target, like do this and you can graduate, or do this and you can become a professor, that target often moves. And most of the time, we're not given a target at all, and so you don't know if you're actually making progress in your career track. You're just told to do more and more and more. And we see that in the numbers here, right? So it's nice when it, we can look at it quantitatively and say, wow, almost 70% almost are unclear about their career plan. And, and we've learned to accept this lower bar for ourselves. Make no mistake, you should be very clear in where your career is headed. And you should be able to ask questions to gain that clarity. It's also on you. You have to have responsibility to ask the questions, to gain clarity, to sit down and set up milestones. Um, but in academia, it's very, very tough to do that. Um, so if, you scroll, if we scroll down here, there's a series of bar graphs and uh, different skills uh, on the left here, right? So from teaching or lecturing, supervision of doctoral and master students, really skill like training of these skills, research impact, public engagement, personal productivity, all the way down to writing grant application. There's a blue line and orange line uh, for males and females respectively. Every item on here is below 30% except for writing and grant applications and teaching and lecturing, right, Jeanette? So what, what is this showing us? Yeah, so this, this graph was looking at the types of training that these postdoctoral researchers were taking, hmm. right? So the first thing to realize is that less than, like, less, like you said, less than 40% of the postdocs are taking any of these kinds of training courses. Right. Right, and that's, when, you, when you're at that level and you're looking to move your career forward, it's important to continue to develop your skills and to keep training. And so this is a problem. Um, yes. And the other thing to realize is that the one that's the biggest is writing grant applications. 
right? And that is not going to help you get a job in industry, right? That is not a skill you need. The other, the skills you need to get hired in industry are your soft skills. You need to develop those, right? Leadership, mm. um, communication, collaborating, all of those. And then career management is on there. And you can see that less than 20% of these postdocs have taken a training in career management. And um, right. those are the types of skills that you will need in order to move forward and excel in your industry career. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these are the transferable skills, which we're going to talk about today as well. I mean, leadership and management, like Jeanette said, public engagement, um, cl even collaboration and team working, career management, very little training, let alone formal training. It's mostly focused on writing grant applications. And even then, there's not training for it. It's just kind of like, figure it out. And I think this is where academia is really missing the structure, right? I mean, there's nothing here that's over 80%. You would think that postdocs are going to get this kind of training, um, but they're not, right? So the only kind of training they're getting is whether it's pushing a pipette or whether it's programming. It's like the experimentation side. They're not getting uh, the skills that they need to move up into higher level positions, management positions. Yeah. And I think the biggest concern here is that those few people who squeak by and even get into an associate professorship, Right, we know that full-time professorships are essentially extinct. They're being replaced by adjunct and part-time, et cetera. People who get into those professorships don't have any of this training either. That's why the system is breaking down. They don't have this kind of uh, collaboration teamwork training, the career management. How are you going to manage people when you don't have any training, training on management? You have no experience there. Uh, so I think that's what causes the system to, to, to break down. So moving forward, I love this simple pie chart because it shows one very important thing. We're, we're talking about transferable skills, which a lot of studies call soft skills, right? The hard skills are like the technical skills, what we're all used to. You should know if you've gone to any of our uh, events or trainings, uh, you've read any of our materials that what's going to get you hired is a transferable skills. And the, the example I like to give is if you show up for an interview, you're not going to be asked to do a Western blot right, uh, in front of the person at, on their desk, right? They're not going to ask you to make a knockout mouse. They're not going to ask you to program, uh, you know, a, a software app while you're there. Instead, they're going to see if you're the kind of person they could work with. Are you the kind of person that their team could work with? Are you a good fit for their culture? This is all the soft, transferable skills, something that we haven't thought about a lot as PhDs. The title here is, in absence of a perfect candidate, 75% of Americans would most likely choose soft skills over experience and qualifications when making a hire. This is pretty incredible, okay? Yeah. Pretty incredible because what it shows is a, a huge portion, 75%, would hire a job candidate who has the soft skills, the transferable skills, um, and not the right experience or qualifications. How is that possible, Jeanette? What does this mean? Yeah, it just, I think it's, it's shocking to see such a large number, right? But people want to work with someone that they want to work with right? They don't want to hire someone who's going to be difficult in the workplace, who they, who they think is going to be difficult. So the impression that, that maybe you would be great, but if you're giving them the impression that you don't have these soft skills, um, they are not going to want to bring you into their team. And I think this is really important to realize is that if you see a position that you want and you don't have all the qualifications, it doesn't matter. What they really want is someone who is a fit for their company, who has the right transferable skills, hmm. right? They can train you on the technical skills that they want you to have. Um, yeah. And the other thing that's really interesting about this graph is that little orange or yellow slice. Um, yeah. And this one is the percentage of people who wouldn't hire anyone 
right? Until they found that perfect candidate. So that means they will only hire you if you have the right technical and transferable skills, right? So you could be the perfect technical candidate and they still wouldn't hire you. You need to have both the combination of these technical and transferable skills together. Mm. And so that means that overall in this survey, 87% of the people wouldn't hire you if you didn't have the right transferable or soft skills. It's pretty amazing. So just to be clear, right, we have three different colors here on a pie chart. The, the, the largest of the three is 75%, and they say they would only hire a candidate who has the, the right transferable skills, right, uh, uh, who has transferable skills, even if they don't have the right technical skills or even if they don't have industry experience. This is great news for you as PhDs because it means you don't need that industry experience if you just develop your transferable skills a bit. The red, the, the other color, that's the second biggest, is only 13%, and the final color is 12%. They're about the same. And what's amazing, like Jeanette said, is that people who would hire someone who has the right experience and qualifications but lacks those personal soft transferable skills, it's the same size as people who wouldn't hire anyone at all. Right? So you, if you don't develop your transferable skills, if you don't communicate those on your resume, your LinkedIn profile during the interview process, very, very unlikely that you will get hired. And that's num the number one reason that we see PhDs really struggling in, in their job search. Um, so so important, important for you to know that. So moving on, we have this great infographic that has a lot of statistics, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of data here. And what's exciting about this is it talks about leadership. And this is going to fit very well into our interview that's coming up in just a minute or two with Liz Weissman, um, where it shows that 84% of organizations anticipate a shortfall of leaders in the next five years. 83% of organizations say it's important to develop leaders at all levels. That is a high number, right? So why, why is this number so high? Why do people care about leadership? And how can, we, how can we get people to think about leadership in a way that makes sense to them that's not just something very abstract, Jeanette? I mean, I don't know. It's hard for me to think of someone not realizing that leadership matters, mm. right? Where would any company go if there was no one to bring that team together, to bring that company together into one like force and yeah. achieve the goal that they've set for themselves? And I think it's really important to realize that such a huge percentage of these companies feel that they are missing or don't have the leadership they need. And that you all, like as PhDs who want to be both the best, that's kind of our deal. Like we wanna be really good at whatever we do, mm. is that you can learn these skills and become a leader and then present yourself like that to these employers, right? And it makes you even more desirable um, right. than just all the skills you already have, right? right? If you can learn how to communicate and portray that you are also a leader. Yeah, and, and as PhDs, sometimes we, we try to hide our eagerness for this, but you shouldn't. You should be enthusiastic and eager to get into leadership positions and to develop leadership skills. So what I would take away from this is you want to get into jobs, showcase your leadership skills because it's clearly important to employers. Also, though, when you're interviewing the employer, don't just get interviewed by them, but remember that you need to make sure the company's a good fit for you. Do they have any sort of leadership development? Do they have leadership tracks, leadership training? These are questions you should ask. And by asking them, you're also going to showcase uh, your willingness to be a leader, right? It's a, it's a great way to show an employer during an interview, uh, a site visit, to even a phone screen that, that leadership's important to you. Um, and, and then some more stats here. 58% of organizations' top priority is closing leadership skill gaps. 43% of organizations say closing gaps. They want to close these great gaps across all levels. 18% um, say their leaders are very effective at meeting business goals, which means 82% are, 
are not. <laughs> Quick math. And then finally, 19% of organizations say they are very effective at developing leaders. So again, 81% are not. And this is specifically why we brought Liz on today to talk to her about the importance of leadership, how to become a leader, how to become uh, what she calls as a multiplier. Uh, so I think that's a great lead in. Jeanette, thank you very much for your time. Thank please, you. Please thank Jeanette in the chat box for coming on with us during the show me the data section. All right. Thank you all. We're going to bring on our very special guest here. I'm going to pull up a, a bio and uh, a couple of, of Liz's uh, book pages here. So Liz is a, a researcher and executive advisor who teaches leadership to executives around the world. She is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Multipliers, which I'm gonna show here in a minute, How the Best Leaders Make Everyone Smarter. The Multiplier Effect is another book, Tapping the Genius Inside Our Schools, and the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Rookie Smarts, uh, Why Learning Beats Knowing in the, in the New Game of Work. She's the CEO of the Weissman Group, a leadership research and development firm headquartered in Silicon Valley, California. Some of her recent clients include Apple, AT&T, Disney, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, Nike, Salesforce, Tesla, and Twitter. I'm sure you've heard of some of those. Uh, Liz has uh, been listed on the Thinkers 50 ranking and named one of the top 10 leadership thinkers in the world. She has conducted significant research in the field of leadership and collective intelligence and uh, writes for Harvard Business Review, Fortune, and a variety of other leadership journals. Uh, former executive at Oracle Corporation. Uh, she worked over the course of 17 years as the vice president of Oracle University and as the global leader of human resource development frequent guest lecturer at BYU and Stanford, holds a, a bachelor's in business management and a master's in organizational behavior at BYU also. Very excited to have Liz on here. Let me make sure we can get Liz's video here. I know we have Liz with us. Hi, Liz, how are you? Well, I'm well. First of all, can you hear me? I can hear you, yes. Thanks for being on. And everyone else, if you could say hi to Liz in the chat box, if you're able to see and hear her, that would be fantastic. Thanks for coming on with us. Really appreciate having you here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Oh, wow, that's a lot of greetings. Um, I'm looking at, uh, at the chat. I feel very welcome. Thank you. Yeah, well, thank you. And uh, we have a lot of people who are very excited about your books. You know, we've been sending out information uh, over the last couple of weeks and really honored to have you here. You know, the first question that I have and, and what kind of the, the data section led into is, can you help us understand what you would define as a, as a leader? Well, I'll share with you my favorite definition, and it came from Jim Collins, who wrote Good to Great and a number of other great books. Uh, I heard him describe it as a leader is someone that people follow when they don't have to. Mm. And so, I just can't think of a better definition, you know. Of course, a leader is someone that people follow, but a lot of us are pretending to follow people mm. uh, because we have to. And, um, you know, I think a true leader is someone that you would uh, – it's that you willingly, of your own volition, you would follow them, whether you report to them, whether you work for their company. And, and they tend yes. to bring out people's best and engender um, people's best thinking and also all of their discretionary effort. So what made you write your book, Multipliers? And just really quick, I want to show that book to everybody. We put the... Um, Oh, it's showing the wrong one here. We put that book into the, into the chat box for all of you as well. Let me get the right page up. Here we go. 
Can everybody see my screen? Just type in yes in the chat box if you can see that. So we have uh, Liz's book, Multipliers, here, which we're going to talk about first. And we'll put that link in the chat box again for you. And then we're going to answer a ask her a couple of questions about rookie smarts as well. Um, but this book, Multipliers, is fantastic. And, and Liz, the, the first- Can I comment that, that um, the one that you um, had up there was the first edition of the book, and there's a second edition, which- Oh, thank you. I think is a lot better, and it's got a lot more in it. So I would point people to the second edition if anyone's gonna take a look at it. We want what's most current for sure. Well, I bet if I just search Multipliers- I love the way that you do all of this live. Um, there we go. Yeah, the one. That's the one. That's my fault. There we go. So we'll put that link in there. How do how how the best leaders make everyone smarter? This is the revised edition. So that's that's definitely the one we want to check out. Thank you, Liz. And so the the question is, you know, before before we talk about what a multiplier is, what made you write this book? Why why did you write it? Well, it was a combination of an observation, a question, and a pressing need. And I really wrote it because nobody else had written it. Um, mm. So the observation came out of my years in the corporate world. And I noticed I got thrown into management really early in my career. And because of that, I watched really carefully what, what the people who seemed to know what they were doing were mm. doing. And what I noticed is that despite the fact that I was working around a, really, a lot of really, really smart people, and working on an executive team of brilliant people, not all of those brilliant people caused brilliance around them. Mm. You know, I would watch absolutely brilliant executives walk in a room and I would see, it was like you could witness the collective IQ of the room drop. Like people, people would cower around these leaders or they would just hold back because maybe that person was so smart and capable, everyone deferred to them. Mm. And, and I ended up calling these leaders diminishers because they were smart, but they ended up diminishing the intelligence and capability of the people around them. But I watched other leaders who were equally brilliant come into a room and I watched people um, step up and speak mm. up and be at their best. And <clears throat> it was just an observation. I'm like, wow, like, why are we so smart around some people, but not around others? Like, why is it that the leader seems to have an effect on essentially effective intelligence? And I was just curious about this. I left the corporate world. I began doing some executive coaching and did a lot of coaching here in Silicon Valley and with a lot of really, really smart executives. And it was actually in coaching someone that I was explaining this dynamic. And he's like, oh, that's interesting. So what you're saying is some leaders are like, amplifiers of intelligence and and that's where this name multipliers came from i went out looking for research on this i was sure somebody else had studied it it was such an obvious dynamic hmm. and nobody had and there was nothing even remotely close to a study around this and so that was the pressing need and honestly i was looking for an article to give my coaching client and there was none. So I figured, well, someone's got to do this. So and it be a pretty big research project. It was, you know, it wasn't just sit down and write a few ideas. I spent the next couple of years researching this and studying it. Hmm. And so what were the findings? What were the, what were these, as you started to look at these amplifiers who 
turned into the multipliers? What were the qualities of these multipliers and how are they different from the diminishers? Well, I'll tell you that the not so surprising finding is that these leaders operate in very different ways. Mm. And, and they come from a very different um, mindset. That's not the surprising part. I, I can tell you more about that, but here's what's surprising is I found that these diminishing leaders get less than half of people's available intelligence. And, and by that, I mean their knowledge, their skills, their insights, um, their, mm. you know, both their technical skills as well as um, their creativity. Half, less than half. And of course, wow. the organization is paying full price. You know, so yes. like a, a school principal, you know, a school board hires all these teachers, but if they have a diminishing principal on staff, mm. they're yielding about 50% of the value of what they've just invested in wow. all over the world. And that's the first thing that was surprising. The second thing that was surprising is that what, well, so few of these diminishers understood the diminishing impact they were having, but the truly surprising finding was that most of the diminishing that's happening is not coming from these um, tyrannical, narcissistic, bully-like diminishers, mm. that most of it's coming from really well-intended people. Mm. The people who are trying to close that leadership gap, people who want to be good bosses, good managers. And, and I find that most of the diminishing is coming from what I call the accidental diminisher. And what, what are they doing wrong? accidentally well and, and i guess fundamentally they they're probably working too hard and they're overplaying their own strengths mm. often we can end up having a diminishing effect on others by being overly helpful mm. you know maybe rescuing people who are struggling before they've had a chance to really struggle it out i see so so it's kind of a taking away from their autonomy or not letting them grow on their own, but trying to jump in and fix the problem and take control before you should. And so what would you, what would you do to train these people uh, to be a multiplier? What are like the five, as you call them, the five key disciplines to becoming a multiplier? Here's what we found that multipliers do very different than diminishers. The first is how they manage talent. The multiplier tends to see and use people's genius. I call mm. it their native genius, whereas diminishers tend to acquire resources, multipliers utilize genius and talent. The second mm. thing they do is how um, the type of work environment they create, whereas diminishers tend to create an environment of stress. Multipliers create an environment of, of safety, intellectual safety, or what Amy, you know, Dr. Amy Edmondson at Harvard Business School uh, studies and writes about psychological safety. She's got a fabulous new book out called The Fearless Organization. Um, the, the third difference is how they set direction. Mm. Ministers tend to give directives. They tell people what to do. And multiplier leaders tend to ask questions. Ask questions. They, they issue challenges. They, they invite people to explore possibilities. The, the fourth difference is how they make decisions. And diminishers tend to be decision makers. Mm. often good decision makers, whereas multipliers tend to be debate makers, mm. not consensus-oriented leaders necessarily, but on the most vital issues, they tend to lead their team in really hard-hitting debate. Mm. And then the last difference is how they, they, they drive for results, how they get things done. 
diminishers tend to be micromanagers, whereas multipliers tend to be investors. They give other people ownership. And then all the accountability that goes with that ownership. So they, they, they put other people in charge and then they keep them in charge without mm. paying it back, without rescuing, mm. without saving the day. So they let them sink or swim, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Fortunately, most people swim. That's great. Um, well, thank you. I want, to, I want to make sure we have time to talk about your, your newest book, uh, Rookie Smarts. And, and maybe you can help us understand, you know, how, did, how are things, wh- what came about between when you wrote Multipliers to Rookie Smarts that made you see the need for Rookie Smarts? Why, why did you write this book? Oh, you know, in some ways, Rookie Smarts was an accident. It was, um, it was a rant. <laughs> Those are the best books. Yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a rant. And um, it's something I've actually always been fascinated with. I, meant, I mentioned to you, I got thrown into management at a really young age. When I, so when I was at Oracle, and I was uh, 25 when I got thrown into management. And mm. told, I know there's a lot of PhDs who are probably listening in. I got told at 25, I maybe asked, but I felt like it was more like I got told to go build a university. For Oracle. So we're this rapidly growing software company. And they're like, you know what, Liz, you're now in charge of training for the whole company. And I guess we were about 3,000, 4,000 employees at the time. And they're like, we need a university, go build Oracle University. And honestly, I had no qualifications for this. You know, my only remote qualification for this job was that I had recently been at a university. Mm. And, but I got put in charge of this and had no idea what I was doing, figured that out pretty fast, and then just kept being given this steady stream of challenges that were above me, beyond me, things I did not have any experience in. And this continued this way for about 15 years. I finally left Oracle. And when I left, you know, people always ask, why did you leave? You had such a great job. I'm like, well, I left because I knew how to do what I was doing and mm. lost it had lost the thrill and the fun of that steep learning curve. And as I was leaving Oracle, I left with this lingering question. And somebody asked me, you know, my friend Dinesh, what's the question that you're holding right now? I said, well, I'll tell you my question. My question is, how does what we know get in the way of what we don't know Mm. and need to learn? Mm. And for me, it was a very personal question because I was leaving this environment where I knew what I was doing. I was an expert. People came to me. Companies wanted to build a university. They came and visited us and we were a best practice. And I set out to do something different. And I was wondering how is all of this experience and knowledge I've gained, how is it going to end up becoming a liability? Mm. As I, as I pivot towards something new and different and I'd always wondered about this and I was actually talking to my publisher about this and I said, you know, this has always been a fascinating question to me. And she said, why don't you go write a book on this? And, and so that was the genesis of Berkey Smarts. And it, it's asking this question, is it possible that we're actually at our best when we know the very least? Mm. So it's we're ignorant, but when we are new, when we are uncertain. And for, yeah. And you hear a lot of in industry about, I think the best companies, they ask their newest staff employees for insights when they first start, right? 
because when they have fresh eyes, you hear stuff like that. You also hear on the, the other side being too close to something, having the curse of knowledge. And so you miss, you miss things that you wouldn't miss if you did have those fresh eyes. So how, fresh ideas over fresh, fresh eyes over fresh ideas. Hmm. We often think newcomers bring all these new ideas. And actually they don't. Hmm. Um, what we bring is we bring new questions. Hmm. We bring new eyes. We notice things we, that other people don't notice. Just like, you know, the first time I went to Dubai, I'm all eyes. I'm, I'm fascinated by everything I'm seeing. I'm asking, okay, am I breaking a norm? Why is this? Why are some of those candors longer and some are shorter? And what's happening mm. here and what's happening there? You know, now when I go to Dubai, I have to admit, I kind of like hop in a cab and I go to, you know, my yeah. hotel. It's like we, we question. We, and it's this vacuum of knowledge that, that forces us to ask questions, to seek out the expertise of others, to question assumptions. And we actually end up bringing in more expertise when we lack expertise because we have to scurry around and go find it. Um, and so we almost get this like multiplier of knowledge mm. when we're new to something. Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating because I think it's something that if we chunk it down to a more practical level, you know, there, there's, there's likely something help, helpful there. You know, a lot of people listening right now, they might not have the transferable skills or other types of skills they need when they first start a, a new job or new position, but maybe this could be an advantage. Is, is there any suggestions you would have for somebody starting a new position? I guess we're doing anything new um, where they don't have the experience yet that would relate to what you're talking about here with, with Ricky smarts. Oh, absolutely. And you know, they've probably got dozens of, ideas and suggestions about what people can do. But I think the fundamental message is to remember that you have an advantage when you're new. Mm. Often we think of newcomers as um, sort of disadvantaged. Um, you know, one manager I interviewed in the research, and I remember he said, you know, I changed the way I, I see newcomers. I used to think of newcomers to my team as empty vessels I needed to fill up. Mm. And he said, I've, I've now come to see them as like whole capable people that need to be used, not mm. filled up. And, and so my, my first and fundamental suggestion is to remember that you have a learner's advantage and that it's possible with, the, with you know, if you bring humility rather than hubris to this, mm. that your intelligence is actually combined with your newness is going to be an incredible advantage. So fundamentally, remember that you are advantaged, not disadvantaged in this role. And then to do all of the kinds of things that rookies do, like ask questions, seek expertise of others, experiment, get resourceful, mobilize expertise of other people um, around you, move fast, you know, score points, Mm. to reduce that and, and you might just be at your very best excellent well thank you very much Liz for being on with us please give Liz a big thank you in the chat box for taking the time to be here um, really really grateful uh, to have you on thanks for sharing your insights and uh, you know why you wrote the book the value that's inside of it and, and just sharing uh, with our audience here thank you my pleasure 
So as, uh, as you say thank you to Liz, please, please do so in the chat box. I'm going to show her newly revised uh, multipliers. Definitely get this book. Check it out. Reach out to Liz on LinkedIn uh, so she can she see just how engaged PhDs are. And I think it'll be a, a, great, uh, a great connection for all of you to have. You should check out her articles and her, the rest of her books too. Rookie Smarts is here. We'll put both of those in the post-show notes as well. Um, and when the highlights come out, we'll send these out to you. Uh, highly recommend both of these books. And it's great to hear from somebody else, you know, what we talk about a lot where you being new at a company, you not having industry experience at all is an advantage. And you just have to learn how to talk about it and, and leverage it. So special thanks to Liz. Check out her books. And we'll see you again soon. Thanks, Liz. Are you looking to get your first or next job in industry? You can go to CheekyRadioBonus.com right now and get our free bonus that's for this podcast episode specifically. You have to go to CheekyRadioBonus.com right now to get this bonus because after this week, the bonus expires. Every week we have a brand new bonus. So if you want this week's bonus, go to CheekyRadioBonus.com and we will send you a free bonus that will help you in your job search and help you thrive in business now. All right. Thanks, everyone. Again, please say thank you to Liz. Look at all the thank yous. That was excellent. Lots of great insights. I learned a lot. And, you know, we do talk a lot about how some companies, right, who are ahead of the curve, they see industry experience as something to be cautious of in many cases, because you have to untrain, right, a new candidate on everything they learned at another company, all their bad habits, et cetera, and then retrain them on the company's, their company's processes. All of you, if you don't have industry experience, this can be seen as an advantage, a learner's advantage, like Liz said. And, and so I was really, really uh, intrigued to hear that from Liz and, and grateful she shared it. So we're going to move right along. We've covered a lot of ground already. We're going to bring on a very special guest, a good friend of mine. Let me make sure he's, he's on here. I see him on now. I'm going to make him a co-host. I'm going to do a quick intro of Tim Bushnell right now. So this is Tim. Tim is the director of the University of Rochester Medical Center's Shared Resource Lab. He's also co-founder of Expert Cytometry. Uh, he enjoys answering paradigm shifting questions and troubleshooting puzzling glitches. Okay, quite the, uh, quite the statement from Tim there. And he, uh, he likes finding new ways to enhance old procedures. Uh, he's a scientist to his core, very passionate about professional relationships and try, strives to fill them with positive energy. He likes grilling, wine tasting, real food, loves flow cytometry, loves, he's a, he's a, he loves the technical aspect of STEM. And he, him and I have worked together for many years now uh, on a project called uh, Expert Cytometry. Um, this is a, a technical course. There's a new technical course uh, that Tim is rolling out uh, called Expert Microscopy. This, these technical courses are part of the technical portfolio now under uh, the Cheeky Scientist banner. We're really excited to, to be working with Tim and to uh, be bringing this technical training to all of you. And it's really technical training for PhDs and who are getting into industry professions. Because what we've seen is, of course, the transferable skills are important when it comes to hiring, getting hired. But after you're hired, you have to stay ahead of the curve with best practices. And right now, there is a, a reproducibility crisis in not just academia, but industry everywhere. And so whoever knows the most reproducible methods can stay up to date on these very advanced technical skills is going to keep climbing the ladder much more quickly in industry. And our goal in Cheeky Scientist is to get as many PhDs, not just into the first positions, but management and executive level 
uh, positions too. So this is Tim. You can connect with him on LinkedIn here. Just search Tim Bushnell. You'll be able to connect with him. We're going to bring him on and we're going to have a, a discussion here. Let me see if I can find Tim. Tim, you just got to turn on your video, I think. Let me see if I can do it for you. You are co-host. There we go. Hey, can you hear me out there? I can. There you are. Good to see you. How Good are you? you? Great. Thanks for the introduction. You're welcome. Please say hello to Tim in the chat box. If you can see and hear Tim okay. Great to have Tim on. Uh, Tim has, I don't know, what is it, Tim? Tim, 30 years of experience? In... I try not to talk about that anymore. <laughs> okay. Lots of experience. And so, you know, the, some of the, the, the story is about, I don't know, five, six years ago, Tim and I started working together on this technical course, Expert Cytometry. It's, it's one of many, you know, technical skills where there's a high barrier to entry. It's, it's very complex. There's also uh, big reproducibility problems based on different antibody panels or everything uses. Uh, and, you know, Tim used to go around all over the world and just speak on this. This is what most professors do, most people in academia do, but it's kind of an outdated system because I know, Tim, you maxed out at maybe, what, 30 events per year, 40 events per year? Yeah. Hotels get boring after a while, as you know, Isaiah. But, yeah. yeah, it was, you know, a large number of events, you know, 20 to 50 in a given year. Mm. Um, and it's hard to, so it was hard to reach everybody. And, oh, and absolutely. It's hard to really, I mean, Tim's goal has always been to crack down on the reproducibility crisis. And so how can you do that by using what we do at Cheeky Scientist, right, is these advanced technologies, advanced networks to bring that kind of training to everybody. And, you know, at first, a lot of people, you know, didn't think it was going to work. You know, they thought it was just going to be about, I think when you first started, it was mostly just doing the, the live courses, right? Right. Yeah. The, uh, the online stuff uh, took off a couple of years after that. We started with some basic webinars that we would, you know, offer. And pretty soon we saw that the market was really interested in having that on-demand training. I mean, not everyone can get to a face-to-face -face course. You can't take time out of your day. And I guess the worst thing is with an online face-to-face -face course is after it's gone, you're done. Hmm. But with the online material, it's like I can go back and review a concept that I've forgotten or I need to brush up on. Right. And so, and this is where the, the, the online courses were, were created and, and expert cytometry, for those of you who have done flow cytometry, and I'm curious if any of you have done flow cytometry in your work, type in me in the chat box. Um, this course has been developed. It's the number one course for flow cytometry in the world now. <laughs> and, and we're moving into microscopy next. And we have several advanced technical courses that'll be coming out as we build up our course portfolio. And so we wanted to share this with all of you. And Tiffany says me, Elizabeth says yeah. me. And Tim. So Tim, my question though is, is more, you know, for this audience, okay, we talk a lot about the importance of transferable skills to getting hired. But right. once you're hired, what have you seen? You've worked with the, the biggest companies in industry. Uh, you, have, you have people at Regeneron. You have people at Metamune, uh, you know, taking this course, right? right. You have people at Pfizer. I, I can't even name, you know, sick kids, the biggest institutions in the world using it. Why are these companies uh, putting such value in technical training now, especially in terms of just this ongoing training for their staff? Why, why is it so important for like a PhD who gets into industry to continue their technical training as well if they want to advance in their careers? What, what are you seeing? Well, I think you, we have to go back to the whole reproducibility crisis in science. Um, I like to point out both the Bear study and then the and Begley analysis paper uh, in Bayer, they said only 25% of the result of the work they tried to reproduce was reproducible. And um, wow. Begley was at Amgen, and it was uh, only like 
11% of the studies that they could reproduce. So that really shows that poor science can't get transferred into biotech industry and lead to downstream treatments and, 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 and um, uh, improvement in the products. Human, you know, yeah. products. Uh, so having, the, having a, a continuing skill set um, and flow cytometry is very big in a lot of these areas, uh, oncology, immunology, things of that nature. Knowing the best practices is critical. And if you learned your practices, you know, 25 years ago, and you haven't changed, mm. you're, you're, what you're doing now is bad science. And that's going to lead to poor reproducible results. So what you need to do is keep up to date as what's going on. And I mean, even for a mature science like flow cytometry, we're still seeing developments. Um, the Cytoff mass cytometer five years ago, spectral analyzers, smaller, faster portable machines, larger numbers of, of fluorochromes. You can ask more questions, but you have to be in careful that you know how to do that properly. You can't go from running a, a four or five fluorescent panel to running an 80 panel color panel in a week, although mm. people try. And, and the, really the marriage of these transferable skills with technical skills and ongoing training is what, what we see in PhDs who climb that ladder very quickly. Um, we've had associates who have gone through technical training courses as well as the career training courses. And that's the key, you know, as PhDs, sometimes we just want to do one or the other. We're just like, oh, the transferable skills, leadership stuff, that's all I'm going to focus on. Or I just want to be a tech, you know, technical and technician. You got to do both because if you just do the technical side, you're just going to be a technician. Right. If you just do the, the leadership side, you're not going to have, you know, what makes you so valuable as a PhD, your ability to learn technical skills quickly and to apply them. Both right. of those together is what makes differentiates you from all the other job candidates out there. I mean, absolutely. If you don't understand the science as a leader in a leadership position, you're not going to be able to evaluate what your um, data is being brought to you. Mm. And if you think about the cost to set up one drug, you know, a phase one or even a phase zero trial, you know, we're talking tens of thousands of dollars to make the product, you know, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to do the first phase one testing, if not more that's a huge investment for a company. And, and so you're going to want people in that leadership position who can evaluate the science. So they need that technical training, but they also have to be able to communicate it and be able to champion it. So you need that, that leadership type of uh, skill set to be able to take that complex data set, explain it to senior management and, and push the project forward. Hmm. But if you don't know how to do and analyze the data, you don't know what you're going to be able to say. And if you can't, don't have those other skills, you can't push it forward. So that balance is so critical. And then how do you, what do you see being the benefit of, especially with these technical training courses of the continuing education credits? Like how we talked about in the biggest industry employers are, you know, buying these courses for their, their PhDs and their staff. Um, you know, why are they valuing it so much? Is it the continuing education is it just the overcoming reproducibility? It, what's, the, what's, the, what's the value there from the, the leadership, right? Like you're trying to impress your, your boss or the CEO or the VP, the, the CSO. Well, so, so in flow cytometry, we have that cer a certification exam. To keep that current, you need to have continuing education credit. And one of the ways to get it is by taking the videos from expert cytometry and watching those and, and participating in that program. So you can get, you know, one CE per video effectively. Um, and that's a lot cheaper than trying to send your technical staff to meetings and conferences where you can get CE credit, but, you know, you're talking about thousands of dollars just to register for some of these classes. Mm. Um, 
in addition to that, you're making sure that your team members and your, the, the, your senior people who are taking the material too have the understanding of the best practices. Um, why should we be doing this or why should we be doing that? I was just at a biotech and we were talking about the whole issue of isotype controls, which is a huge um, issue if you read the, uh, the Excite blogs and, and read some of the other material we've written. And they're still doing those. And that's not the best practice. And so they're wasting money, they're wasting time, they're wasting energy. So knowing the best practices helps you also save money. Mm. And yeah. having, a, having a team that's got the skill set means that you're going to do the, do the process right the first time. You're not going to have to reinvent the wheel a hundred times and lose that momentum. Hmm. Great, great stuff. So just please say hi to Tim and thanks Tim for being on here. I, I, we can't overstress the importance of both, right? As a PhD who wants to get into a high level position in industry, you have to stay up to date on the technical side and you have to learn the transferable side. You got to marry the two together. Um, Tim, really look forward to seeing what's new with the new microscopy course. I know yeah. some new courses coming out. So thanks for sharing. Microscopy is next. We're looking forward to that one. Okay. Thanks, Isaiah. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Tim. Please say thanks to Tim in the chat box. Uh, if you are interested in learning more about flow cytometry, Tim is doing a webinar this Thursday. Uh, you, can, you can attend this for free. We'll put the link in the chat box for you. Uh, for those of you listening to us by audio, it's expert cytometry, C-Y-T-O-M-E-T-R-Y, dot com slash data dash analysis dash webinar. So expertcytometry.com slash data analysis webinar. This webinar on Thursday is advanced flow cytometry data analysis and stats for publication. Great webinar. The analysis part, the figure preparation is uh, not easy. Uh, in particular with, with this, this technical uh, skill set. So great webinar to attend. And we're going to move it right along. We have a, another very special guest. Orly Leviton is coming on with us. I'm going to show her bio here. Doesn't look like it's sharing. Let me try one more time. So this is Orly. She is a cheeky scientist associate. She has transitioned into industry. She is a senior project manager. She earned her PhD at Bar-Ian, I'll have to have her help me with that, University, and is currently the senior project manager at uh, Hygia Care, uh, where she is responsible for the Hygibiome business and research program aimed towards maximizing the value of the Hygia Care products and services on the gut and overall health of our patients. Her role at Hygia Care involves initiating, forming, and maintaining collaborations, both with the private sector and with the scientific uh, the scientific academic world, and she is in charge of communicating the company's products and science to different stakeholders. We thought it would be great to have Orly on, who you can see here on her LinkedIn profile. We'll put that in the chat box too. If you reach out, make sure you send a nice message before you connect. Very excited to have Orly on. Uh, we're going to bring her on now. We're going to talk to her about her career path as a project manager. This is a very popular career track for PhDs. Um, so we're really excited to be able to talk to her about how she got into the career, what she does on a day-to-day -day basis, what departments does she interact with, uh, what's the career trajectory look like. And I'm going to see if we can bring Orly on. I think you just got to activate your video, Orly, and then we should be good to go. How are you? Good. How are you, Isaiah? Good. If you can see and hear Orly, can you say hello in the chat box? Excellent. And was I saying your last name right? Leviton. Yeah. That's Leviton. How you would say it's an American. 
Awesome. Well, thanks for being here. Great to see you. How's your day going? Wonderful. Thank you. Perfect. So you are in a project management role, and I thought what might be helpful to start is just defining what that is, because a lot of people get confused with, you know, uh, product management or program management or communications. Can you, what's the easiest way to think about a project manager in industry? So it really depends uh, because in big companies, uh, there are very defined roles for project manager and product manager and so on and so forth. In small companies like the one that I work at, um, it's basically all the same yes. uh, because it really depends. Um, the one thing that I think is kind of works for all of them in many ways actually taps into something Liz just said. A really nice definition of a leader that I like that a leader is someone that you follow, although you don't have to. Mm, I like that. In most of those roles, you have to get different people that don't have to report to you actually to report to you in order to do your job yes. well. And so, if you've ever heard us talk about cross functional relationships or collaborations, it's getting people to do stuff we don't have authority over. Exactly. Right? And so how do, you, how do you do that? I mean, I know this is the reason that you got hired because you're able to do this. So get, help us get in the side, inside the mind of Orly. How do you pull off this magic trick of getting people to do stuff and you don't have any authority over them? Um, I work really hard. Mm. Um, I believe in what I do. I mm. try to reflect that. I work for the best, uh, for what I believe that is the best for the company. And I believe that the people that work with me wants the same. They want the same. I, um, I try really um, with thin interactions to minimize my ego. It's not easy after I've been a professor at an academy. Mm. Uh, but it's really like it's about the product. It's about the project. It's about the company. Yes. And I, I try to be as polite as I can, and to be very elaborative, to be very transparent, to understand, to explain why I need those things to get done. Yes. Um, so far, it has been working. So let's unpack that because everything you said is, is very valuable. Um, to be a good project manager, to be able to navigate those cross-functional relationships, number one, like we talk about adding value first, you have to be a hard worker and do the work yourself. Are you carrying your part of the bargain? Because if somebody else doesn't see you doing work and trying hard, they're not going to try hard for you, right? Because it's not the same as having authority and saying, just do this because if you don't, you're fired. You have to work together. So having that value exchange and holding up your end of the bargain matters. Taking the ego out of it. So there's not even a sense of do this or else or do this because I said so, but instead, let's do this together, right? We're in this together for the company, right? It's, why, am I gonna, why do I need you to do this for me? For the company, for this deadline to get hit. And that why part is so important. There's lots of studies that show that just saying the word because in a sentence makes people more likely to do it because it ties to a reason why. And so I think those three things were huge, uh, Orly. Uh, and and just one thing, um, I always, and that everyone that has a PhD in STEM, right, knows how to learn. I always make sure to try and learn as much as I can mm. um, Theoretically, so if I go and meet someone that does something, I'll do the due diligence of learning everything I can about this person, about what they do, about the theoretical matter in hand. So when I get to the meeting, 
at least I'm confident enough to know that I know everything I could have known. Mm. This maybe puts me at ease and enables me to, fa- to funnel my energy towards doing the best for the company. Yeah, and doing your homework. I mean, again, that goes back to work, doing your end of the, the work and, and not just showing up and hoping that other people figure it out for you. Uh, I think it's very important. I, I do want to talk to you a little bit about how you got into the role because I think a lot, we've had a lot of people in the association, a lot of PhDs um, who are watching us publicly right now want to get into project management. They don't like quite how to know how to get there. So maybe you can talk about not just the how, but the why. Why do you think you were hired into a project management role and maybe a little bit about the process too? Um, so maybe I'll talk about the, pro- I don't, listen, I didn't hire myself. So I can talk to you about the process. I cannot sure. talk to you about the why. Sure. Um, so um, first of all, when I decided to leave Academy, I really defined what I want. Mm. I, and it was a process and I think everyone needs to do this process. You don't just get hired as a project manager, right? You need to know that you, that you want to do that. Most people need to know that. Uh, So I defined, I defined the where, okay, where I live. I wanted to stay here. I defined the, uh, the discipline. I really wanted to go into the biomedical microbiome. So I really, because it helped me to find my energies towards where I wanted to go. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important because many people will tell you not to do that and to keep your like open horizons. But I really thought that it's really good to define. I learned because that wasn't my discipline. I learned a lot. So when I get to the interviews, I can reflect that I can transfer mm. and that I have the knowledge. Um, you have to put yourself out there to be very confident about your soft skills, to be very confident that you can do that, although you never did that, mm. technically. Uh, well, actually, technically you did that, but like you, you're not yeah. technically certified, right? I didn't go sure. through an MBA. I didn't do it, like I didn't go through PMI, so. Um, Which and, is an important point, because everybody thinks that as a PhD, we're like, well, we need more education, another degree, but you don't, I and you got into it. Please continue, I think that was an important point. But, but. But I did do a lot of learning myself. Yes. Right. So I did have some kind of training. So I was able to use the right vocabulary when I interviewed. Because you're a PhD and you can learn on your own. It's your most important uh, transferable skill. Absolutely. Exactly. And, and, I, and, and I like to give, right? So I started, uh, so when also for the transition, when I left, I opened an LLC just because I really like to mentor and to teach. And I thought it would be a nice platform for me while mm. transitioning. Mm. And, I, I, and it worked. I really enjoy that. And I do that as well. Um, but as part of that, I, I give. So when someone contacts me, I, I like to show a demonstration of what I do and what I like to do and what I can do. Um, and I think that by giving before taking, this also um, kind of distinguishing, it distinguishes me mm. uh, as a person that works for the mutual effort of whatever needs to be done. Yes. So, uh, yeah. No, no, that's great. I, I want to make sure we have time for two more kind of key questions. I want to stay with the, the role because, uh, again, so many people are interested in it. You talked a little bit about what you do. Um, in the role, but can you break it down even more to almost on a day-to-day or week-to-week basis? And you know, how much of it's meetings, following up with people, checking on timelines, projects, juggling? Like, what what is it? What does the role look like? 
it's everything. And that's what I love about that. So mm -hmm. there are days that I have back-to-back -back meetings. Uh, and I actually work around the clock. So I live in uh, the Northeast. And I, um, I work, there are days that I work, um, that I start very early with Israel and then follow up meetings with Germany and then mm. have some kind of a break. And then I work with California and, and I love it. It's really nice. So like some days are meetings. Um, some days are like I detach and I do a lot of research. Mm. Um, some days I write. So I wrote a vision paper and I write in protocols and, um, and some days are data analysis. It's a, as I said, it's a small company, so I get to do a lot of that. Yeah, um, that's a typical project management role too, right? So a lot of coordinating, a lot of meetings, and and a lot of this work where you just are filling in the gaps to get a something done. Whether it's you have to write something, uh, a report, so, you know, just moving the project forward. And I think in a project management role, you're going to wear more hats than most other roles, for yeah. sure. And, and there are those, like, there is the 30 minutes a day where I have the list of, like, emails, people to follow, mm. to see, you know, was the money wired here with this? Did this happen? Do I need to reply to that? So you kind of need to form a system. Mm. Um, and it's really nice. It's like... Do you, you use, do you use any project management software at your company or anything that's helped you in terms of tools? So no, I actually looked into that. The thing is that I actually work with the productivity method that mm. I worked with for a long time and it works for me. Like I have a tickler file and I have like an inbox. So I work, I do a lot of um, Dave, David Allen stuff, get things done. Get things done. Yeah, I heard the tickler file. I knew exactly what that is. Yeah, it's a great method. And I love it and it's working for me. Maybe, you know, when the company gets bigger, then maybe we'll introduce some tools, but this like, I really, it's really helpful. So for now it works. David, I'm just gonna type in David Allen. Yeah, get, getting stuff done. Um, Lisa, if you find that book, it's a great one for, every, for any project manager. Last question I have is the career trajectory. You know, I think it's one of these careers where you can really almost go anywhere because you interact with every department. Yeah. But what do you, what do you see uh, other project managers getting into what, what's you know vertically I guess maybe more laterally what, what's the what's the next step so you know I think if you go towards the classic PMI you know waterfall kind of projects agile kind of project like the immediate um, vertical transition promotion would be usually COOs mm -hmm. however when you look at STEM PhDs that are project managers, I think there are so many other options, right? They can be VP research. Mm -hmm. um, I, I personally really like, I don't think I'll go there because I don't think I'll ever give up research, but who knows, you know, like marketing and products could be an amazing way to go from, pro from project management. Mm. I really think that the combination of being a STEM PhD and a project manager can actually lead you to almost anything you want to do because mm. you're involved yeah. with everything yeah well said um, and i think it's a great great transition role uh, it's a great role to get into if you want to get a lot of business experience working with every department see what everything else does um, because you all have project management experience it's different in industry for sure but at the same time the values are kind of the same tracking things juggling multiple things uh interacting with multiple people not having authority right? Which all of you have experience with getting stuff done with people you don't have authority over. So Orly, thank you very much for your insights. Really, really appreciate it. Great to see you.
Thank you so thank much, Adrian. Please thank Orly in the chat box for her time. Make sure you connect with her on LinkedIn if you haven't already. Send the note, though. Follow the Cheeky Methodology. And uh, we'll see Orly again soon. Thank you. Okay, so this takes us to the end of the public portion of the radio show. Uh, just as a reminder, make sure you go and get the show up bonus. We'll put that in the comment section, whether you are on YouTube or if you're on Facebook. We'll be adding the post show notes uh, in the uh, text portion of this post on both the, the, the Facebook page, the YouTube page, or wherever you're watching us. Stay tuned for the highlights that will be out in a week or two on the Cheeky Scientist blog, cheekyscientist.com slash blog. And we will, all, we will see you soon, very soon, for another Cheeky Scientist radio show. We are on Wednesdays, uh, every, every other week or so on Wednesdays. Uh, we always go live at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. As always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. This takes us to the end of another Cheeky Scientist radio show podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you want to learn more about transitioning into your first or next job in industry, just go to phdsgethired.com. Go to phdsgethired.com. We will send you all of our free training materials that will help you start your job search now or help you take it to the next level in business. As always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. Pop, pop, the bass.